Welcome to Permaculture Freedom Podcast. My name is Cody and I'm your host. This is a show about cultivating freedom in our lives so we can be our best self. Freedom to live a beautiful, regenerative lifestyle that inspires our families, our friends, and our community. To transform our lives and reconnect to nature within. It's a revival of our roots. Roots that run deep into the earth. We were born for this time. We were born for this time. Thanks for joining me on this beautiful journey. Thanks for showing up. The locals call it God's own country. Here the seasons are kind, the rain is usually reliable and the animals raised in the Kiwa Valley are some of the best. And the scenery makes it one of the most attractive farming areas in the country. But 20 years ago, farmers were going broke in this beautiful valley. Heavy winter rain had washed the goodness from the soil and farms on the valley floor had been flooded time after time. In the early 1960s, Local dairy farmers formed a group to fight the soil erosion, floods and droughts that were driving some of them to financial ruin. In 1966, they found a man who brought the promise of better days to the battling dairy farmers of the Kiwa Valley. His name is Percival Yeomans, but everyone calls him P.A. His idea has always been to make the rain that falls on a property work for, not against the farmer. That means the water has to be controlled. So in 1966, Yeomans began looking for a place to start his work in the Kiwa Valley. This is the key point of a small primary valley. And the key line goes by the way from this point finishes quite close on the side. Yeomans has to find that key point in every valley. As this diagram shows, a valley lying between two ridges gets more water. With every shower of rain, the water runs off the ridges and down the valley. However, where the slope of the valley changes to flatten out, well, that's the key point. And the contour line from this point is Yeomans' key line. Having found that point and line, Yeomans can then show a farmer how to plough on the contour so that the water will spread out of the valley onto the ridges. Or a dam can be built to catch the water running down off the steeper slopes. So in the Kiwa Valley back in 1966, Yeomans began looking for those key lines on almost every property. It only took a couple of weeks for him to tell the farmers living here where to construct more than 40 dams. Yeomans also explained how to control flooding rain and to store it for later use. He showed the farmers how to plough around the hills on the contour, where to put irrigation channels, and made people think about water usage on their farms. This scene of prosperity framed in a mantle of green is P.A. Yeomans' reward. All the ideas had actually been tried on Yeomans' own farm near Sydney. As this old film shows, the property was something of a showplace. 
At field days like this one, back in the 1950s, people came from all over Australia to look at Yeoman's work. The people came here to listen to a mining engineer turned farmer, to see how dams and irrigation channels would hold water, and how he could turn a rundown farm into a productive property. What they saw here made them take away the idea of using key lines back to their own areas. Another huge field day was held here in the Kiwa Valley. Nearly 5,000 people came to watch this dam built in a matter of hours. By the time this field day was held, Yeomans had given the name Key Line to a farming philosophy, which not only included water management, but also soil improvement and tree planting. The Key Line concept was a new approach to farming. It cuts across the orthodox in how to handle water, and water is the principal planning medium. Water comes before roads and fences and everything. If you get the water right, then the roads are right, you plant the trees in the right place, and no one does that. So I'm critical of the way they plant trees, the forestry department, if you like. I'm critical of the water board because they don't know how to handle water. Not on farms. They're experts on the big dam and the reticulated water, but on a farm, no, they're not. Agriculture, uh, their emphasis there is on getting things out of the soil by putting some a little bit in. My emphasis on that the soil isn't what you're dealing with, oh, it's not only the soil, it's the subsoil, and the subsoil is the, is the largest and greatest and most valuable deposit of mineral and chemical nutrient elements on the face of the earth. There's no mine as rich as the subsoil, and the farmer owns it, and he's leaving it alone. You turn the subsoil into soil. Then you haven't got to worry about losing the soil because good soil wants to stay home. It doesn't want to go away. To make use of that deposit of nutrients in the subsoil, Yeomans developed his own chisel plough. It's designed to break up the topsoil, allow air, water and some plant roots to reach the subsoil. Then the nutrients are mixed with the surface soil and all the plants benefit. Having designed the chisel plough, Yeomans also built it at his own factory in Sydney. He's also had interests in coal mines, gold fields and even a brewery. But Yeoman still gets most satisfaction from the work he does for farmers. The work that Yeomans did in the Kiwa Valley is still remembered. While the original key line systems have been changed and modified by most farmers, men like Harry Adams still believe the irrigation water they had in times of drought made them financially secure. It's made our farming much easier. It's made it, given us an assurance for every year. I haven't had no such thing as any more bad years. And, uh, and we've been able to, carry, to improve our carrying capacity quite a lot. When Mr Yeomans came into the valley back in the, 90, in the late 60s, did yeah. you believe that it was going to be that successful? No, I could not see it. Why were you uh, sceptical at that stage? Well, I suppose the mo one of the main reasons was lack of experience in that uh, field. Because uh, we'd never had water before. And it was just amazing what we could do when we got water. However, Yeomans and Keyline have not escaped criticism. 
Russell Hogg has been a farm consultant in the Kiwa Valley for nearly 20 years. Soon after the first dams were built, he was telling his clients to think carefully about the overall cost of the scheme. And while he admits that people are now more conscious of water conservation, he believes that Keyline was not a real revolution. It was basically a passing fad that uh, there are a lot of problems. Chisel ploughs left paddocks very rough. Uh, the water schemes themselves um, are there. They're being utilised to some degree, but um, not as much as one might have originally envisaged. Despite his critics, Yeomans is still being paid to set up Keyline irrigation systems. Nowadays, he travels from his home in exclusive Vaucluse, Sydney, to consulting jobs all over the country. He's even been paid $1,000 a day by an American who wanted to farm the Keyline Way. Okay. On this 4,000 hectare Victorian property, he's laying out a scheme that could take three years to complete. Well, you bloody well take the words out of my mouth, but yeah, I was going to say. We're starting to know people There's there. good logical <laughs> finish to it in the centre of that yeah. valley. And we can From here, he'll go to Claremont, Queensland, and a 16,000 hectare key line development, which he describes as the biggest and most impressive he's ever done. Like, if we go down in, and, like, start in the bottom of the valley down there... Yeah. In recent times, though, Yeoman has also broadened his key line philosophy to cover city planning. Up, up to... Right. He argues that his careful approach to planning will avoid pollution and make the best use of the landscape. So interest in the 40-year-old Keyline idea still remains. Reading his book and seeing physically coming and explain his theory is, is two different things and that was the basic reason. Let him come here and show us. He is basically a practical man and show us in a practical way how he applies his theory. Will you uh, stand by the recommendations that he makes? Will you follow them closely? Oh, no. We may or may not adopt his principle. We're here to find out. That's, that's what Mr Yeomans is here for. We may or may not adopt his principle. You have a reputation of coming onto a property and making your decisions very quickly, just in a day or so. How do you do that? Well, practice. I've been wrapped up in it for what's well, nearly 40 years. Well, since 1943, I started to try to look at land intelligently and let the land tell me what I should do about it. And, uh, well, it, it sort of talks to me now. What Sometimes it? it talks to me in about three or four hours, but it always starts to... T to tell me, that makes obvious to me, uh, to just what I should do with the land. Do you always so trust the land you? itself decides what you should do. As soon as you've got the right attitude and the right feeling for land, it sort of tells you its secrets. So on some properties, you can assess them at 80 mile an hour as you drive past them or through them. At others, you've just got to know it. While some modern-day farmers may question the Keyline principles, dams like this are still being built around the country. They stand as monuments to a man who's never avoided confrontation with so-called experts in agricultural and government departments. I've got no ground that is 
of the acceptance, because I wasn't looking for acceptance, so I'm delighted with the controversy and with the acceptance I've got. What That's do you, fine. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, well, keyline. Yeah, keyline. It's the greatest thing I've done and will ever do, and I think it's pretty great. And it's a very satisfactory feeling that I've got key line. And I'll, my name and key line will, oh, I don't think they'll ever forget it. It may seem surprising that a man who's been a successful engineer, businessman and entrepreneur would want to be remembered for a farming method that appears so simple. But for P.A. Yeomans, the greatest reward is seeing areas like the Kiwa Valley benefit from his key line philosophy. P.A., thank you very much indeed for being with us this morning. I'd like to start by possibly investigating a, a point of view that I think many, many of our listeners will be a little bit um, hazy about. I know when I was at school myself, we learned that the soil we've got is a, a precious resource and once it's been eroded away and we see all the erosion gullies around the place, that topsoil is virtually lost forever. Now, your own experiments have shown that, in fact, you can grow, literally grow topsoil on previously very, very barren areas. Perhaps you'd uh, like to discuss this. How actually do you go about doing this, growing topsoil on previously very barren areas? Well, first of all, I'd like to give an opposite view to the general one and say that the most valuable deposit of chemical and mineral wealth on earth is the subsoil because as much of, you, of it as is required and I'm not limiting that to a few inches but to several feet mm -hmm. can be made quite quickly not slowly. This subsoil is actually the deposit below the topsoil as we know it, is that right? Yes that is exactly it. It's, uh, it's gone through the process of soil formation, the ageing process. So you're not dealing with some solid rock that you've got to turn into soil in a couple of million years. The million years have passed. So the only stage that's left is the very rapid stage of soil life, making the soil. All you've got to do is feed the microbes. Now, you've virtually perfected that method of feeding the microbes. Tell us about it. Well, originally, we had poor soil or no soil. So we aerated the soil and planted um, pasture in it to produce a pasture. Every now and again, we got a good pasture, but it disappeared. So once when we had a really good pasture, only lasted about a year, we tore it to pieces. We got a better one next year. Then we tore it to pieces a bit deeper with a chisel plough in those days. And we got a better pasture, but we had seven or eight inches of soil in three years instead of no soil or just a skin of soil. So what we were doing, of course, was allowing the grasses and the clovers to grow to nearly the flowering stage. Never eat them off when they're young because the roots won't have gone down far enough. 
you allow them to get up to the near flowering stage, the roots will have gone as deep as they can. And if you've aerated a bit of the subsoil, the roots will go down into the subsoil because it will be moist and aerated. As soon as the uh, grass is mown or eaten off by stock, it suffers a shock. And to get over the shock, it calls on the nutrients in the dead in the roots that were in reserve for the great reproductive event of flowering and setting seed. And uh, a few days later, a new set of roots will start downwards. But the old set of roots, that's newly dead roots of mixed grasses and clovers, that is the perfect food for soil life and it's the perfect means of introducing organics into the soil. I think we've got to really emphasise here this aeration technique. Now you use a chisel plough. Just how does the chisel plough vary from the vast acreages of, of, of paddocks that we see ploughed today? Well, the chisel plough, which we introduced to Australia in 1951 or two, has seems to have led to uh, enormous numbers of them being sold and also influencing other types of cultivators and farmers to use the uh, scratch type implement instead of the mulleboard of course went out when the disc came in and the disc plough now is sort of on its way out with the various versions of the chisel plough or the scratch plough. It's like the old Egyptian stick plough of course. What, what I'm trying to get at here is that the chisel plough actually does not turn the soil over, does it? No, it, uh, it doesn't turn the soil over. But we've designed another implement in 1974. We got the Prince Philip Prize for it, which leaves the horizons of the soil more in place than a chisel plough does. Actually, you can run it through eight inches through a pasture and look back and hardly see that you've been there. What but sort of plough is that? It's called the Bunyip Slipper Imp with Shakerator. <laughs> <laughs> the bun Bunyip Slipper Imp with Shakerator. Yeah. Uh, all right, tell us about that. That sounds pretty tremendous. Well, it arose uh, very early in the piece when we struck trouble with the chisel plow in certain types of clay that no matter how much weight you put on them it just wouldn't get down deep enough to give you a reservoir of moisture down there. Uh, it was really inspired again to do something about it when I wrote the um, City Forest in 1971 and we got on with it then but uh, it has an easier entry into the ground and it splits and shatters upwards. Mm -hmm. The vibrator greatly assists it to do that. This vibrator is just a sort of a, an off-centre weight on, on the PTO part of the plough, is it? Well, it's uh, inspired by a wobbly wheel in the front of a motor car. Mm -hmm. was the uh, idea and... Uh, it's one of those things that uh, have a bit of luck with it. It's worked right first time, almost first time. Right. Usually these things come after a lot of mistakes. Mm. They're the foundations of any successes, usually. But this one came very easily. Mm. And we had luck with the plough, in that we designed it to do certain things, and uh, 
through accident and a little bit of luck, we got it to do a lot better than we ever anticipated. Oh, P.A., you mentioned that the new plough, the bunyip, etc., uh, keeps the soil profiles intact. I wonder if you could explain to us why that's important. I can tell you of an incident that happened many years ago when I was mostly connected with tin mining. I was out on a property and the uh, owner told me that uh, he'd employed a young Englishman and the weather was good for ploughing and he was going to town so would he plough up this 20 acre paddock. He showed me the paddock 20 years later and it hardly grew a weed. What the uh, Englishman had done is what they do in England. He turned it over with a moldboard plough. So he'd turned the dead tops or the uh, little bit of soil underneath a body of dead topsoil and nothing happened. Mm. But by keeping the horizons in place, you have the fertility and the microbes aerated and in place and they'll move downward. And you don't want to go too deep in the first instance. Mm -hmm. It'd be like trying to make beer with not enough in, of the ingredients. It'd be too watery. So you limit the depth to about what you can aerate right through. That is from shank to shank. Mm -hmm. PA, I once heard someone say that if they did nothing else with a little bit of money that they had, and this person was... Uh, one of your key line proponents, someone who had a farm, if there was no money for a dam, no money for a gate valve, if they did nothing else but chisel, pat and plough their land, that they would increase the water absorption and the water storage on that property. W would you care to comment on that? By aerating the soil properly, we put it in a condition to take in moisture. And if the whole of Australia was aerated just another three or four inches deep, it would hold more water than in the Snowy Mountain scheme. So uh, water becomes in Keyline the basis of planning because of the natural factors of climate, the heat and light of the sun, the air and the water and its various movements. There's only one of those factors that can be planned for that will improve the use of all the others. You improve the sun, you improve the air by controlling the water and taking water into the soil when it's needed. So the basis of key line planning is the natural landscape with its own water lines, with new water lines that control all the water. When those lines are in, they position the roads. The roads automatically give you the subdivisions and within the subdivisions you start your so soil treatment. Mm -hmm. These man-made lines for water control uh, together with the water lines of the landscapes, that's the, the water lines of the small valleys and the little creeks and streams and rivers, uh, form a pattern of water lines which are channels uh, to transfer water perhaps to dams, uh, others to transfer it from the dams for irrigation, other lines uh, usually up the gentle ridges are for the transfer of water to a lower area 
or sometimes from pumping from a source that's low down for use higher in the landscape. That gives you the pattern. We call it the key line grid, and all, all planning is based on a grid system because it has to be. You subdivide the land, so you've got to get at it, so it's always a grid. It's not the grid that can be wrong as a grid, it's the manner of the grid. So our grid is a natural water line grid plus the control line grids. So you then have a pattern for the landscape. And the landscape imposes itself on the planner. The planner doesn't put geometrical patterns on the land in key lines. I'm a little bit confused about how ongoing this process is, how regular it has to be. Do you plough once a year or more often than that, PA? Well, there are various circumstances that arise. For instance, pasture. A mixed pasture is the, probably the quickest means of improving soil. Now, under irrigation conditions, you can cultivate uh, five or six times in the one year if you wanted to. We've done that to see if we could destroy the soil by over-cultivation. With a chisel plough it was in those days. And uh, we found that that don't destroy the world, the thing by cultivation, the soil by cultivation. You just make it happen. But that's in the irrigation conditions in the summertime. Mm. Now, if it's, ra if it's ordinary rainfall condition and your most reliable rain is in the autumn, then for the first three years you cultivate each autumn. Mm -hmm. So it's a process for three years. But then you have to watch the soil because everything that happens in farming is tending to compact soil. The implements, the cattle, all tending to rob the soil of its air. So you watch the soil when you see uh, some of the grasses that's like sourish conditions start to come in, all right, you need air, so you do it again, maybe five years later. But all the time you have to watch the soil and read the soil. Now, under the conditions where they're cropping, well, nature can't make soil without legumes, whether it's a rainforest soil or a natural pasture. And by legumes, you mean what sort of crops? Uh, any legume, but uh, the clovers and the uh, trefoils and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So we would never plant wheat crop. It would always have its companion legume because there's something magical about the dead roots of legume that seems to trigger everything off rapidly. I think you could just repeat that. I think that's a very important point. You, you don't just plant a, a wheat crop on its, on its own. You have another crop with it. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, in fact, uh, the big thing to decide then is to select the companion legume or you may have two varieties of legume to plant with every grass crop. Mm -hmm. That includes all your grains as well as sugarcane. They're all grass crops. Mm. So you plant always a legume with the wheat. Mm. You just pick a legume that's not going to interfere with the planting or the harvesting of the wheat. The soil will continuously approve then with the uh, companion legume, mm -hmm. not quite as fast as with a mixed pasture, that's the best of the lot. But soil will improve and deepen as deep as you want it 
as long as you keep your companion legume going. The earth is sufficient. Can you use any legume with any crop or do you have to match um, a particular legume with a particular crop? Any legume, just about any legume, will suit the growing of the crop, but the important thing is it mustn't interfere with harvesting. For instance, uh, one farmer friend grew a barley crop with the Dolica Slab Lab. He was a key liner, this man, and doesn't use fertilisers, uh, artificial fertilisers, and he doesn't use sprays. He spends most of his spare time is a beach buggy fan <laughs> running around on um, Flinders Island, I think it is. However, he grew with uh, barley, Dolichus lablab, which is a vine-type tropical legume. And you had a look at it sometime before it was ready to strip and he found that the legume had climbed up the stalks of all the barley and it was just a mess. He didn't think he'd take anything off it. But just as... Uh, just before it was, the crop was due to harvest, the Dolica Slab Lab set seed and died and broke up into little pieces, about half an inch long, and all dropped down on the ground, and he took a crop that was 50% higher in the one year from the Dolica Slab Lab and the combination of barley. Mm. He also has a, another crop he grows with sales clover, which most people haven't heard about. So the important thing is the practical, one, practical one of being able to harvest and sow the legume that goes with whatever grass and barley's a grass. So to those people who uh, say to you that it's virtually impossible to grow um, large crops of of any of our uh, staple uh, grasses like wheat. Uh, without the use of uh, fertilisers and chemicals and herbicides, you would say that this is completely wrong? It is completely wrong. There's a difficult period of changing over because you can't just stop using fertiliser and do nothing else. You won't get a crop. So the, the little difficult part is just the change over. But uh, if you have someone else's experience of having done it and made a mistake and found the right one, of course it's a big help. Mm. But no crop should be planted without a legume. Mm. That's a very, very important uh, point. I'm sure that many of our listeners will not have realised this. Uh, I find it fascinating myself and I'm sure that a lot of people will be um, interested to hear that. Well, P.A. Yeomans, you're going to be actually addressing a uh, seminar on Thursday the 26th of April. This has been organised by the Murray Valley League and it's in Albury and I believe that uh, we've got another very, very distinguished guest from overseas. Some of us may have seen a story about him in Thursday morning's age. But part of your own speech, which I'd like you to read to us here, uh, gives a nice, succinct, very... Um, concise view of what key line is and perhaps we can say a little bit about Dr Sopper after this but just read us a little bit of your your summary of what you maintain key line really is. Briefly the foundation of key line is a planning medium of the same as those for the natural landscape namely the shapes and form of the land and the particular climate that have been applied that have applied the finishing touches smoothed it off you know 
these are the more permanent things. Of the factors that determine climate, such as the heat and light of the sun, or the air and water and its various movements, one alone can best be manipulated to gain greater landscape value from the others. Of course, it's water. The control of water for its beneficial use thus becomes the supreme basis of planning. The first objective of planning has to be the enhancement and enrichment of the land. Since all planning interrupts the natural tree-like branching and joining pattern of the little valleys, the small creeks, the streams and the rivers, planning also interrupts the pattern of water from rain flowing over the land. It has to. But it's not the interruption as such that's wrong, but the manner of it. Planning the land can lead either towards its enhancement and the enrichment of the environment or to its degradation. Mm, I think very, very true words. Planning, I think, as we well know here in Melbourne, is uh, sometimes a little bit out of control. Tell us uh, here, uh, we, we have been very fortunate to have in Australia a, a visit by Dr William Sopper. Um, perhaps you can tell us why he is such an eminent person in his own field and what he's going to be talking about up in the Murray Valley League on the 26th of April. Well, Dr. William E. Sopper is Professor of uh, Forest Hydrology at the University of Pennsylvania near a city called State College in that state. I've had the pleasure of touring with him and talking to him over a few days last week. And I think I'm also going to introduce him as the principal speaker at the symposium that's being held on the 26th at Albury. It goes all day. Is this open to the public, by the way? It's open to the public, and you just have to bring along $45. But if you only want the papers afterwards, it's $25. That's right. uh, why he's so famous in America is because of experiments that have been conducted at State College where they had two great problems. One, the stream through the city had become badly polluted. And second, the aquifers from which they draw their water were rapidly depleting and getting deeper and deeper and less and less. So the problem was to purify the effluence and return it to the groundwater for reuse. Uh, it's been so successful that uh, the United States government now pay 85% towards this type of treatment as opposed to any other treatment. You must understand that the normal first and second stage of treatment goes through, but this replaces the tertiary treatment, which is very, very expensive. And from the accounts of Dr. Soper, not too successful. So uh, I'll be introducing Dr. Soper on Thursday. Now, they're going to be trying to uh, solve a, a problem which I consider to be a very, very major one, and that is pollution from a major industry up in, in the Albury area. I think this has very strong local significance. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this. Well, the new uh, newsprint mill 
that uh, Australian Newsprint Mills are putting in at Albury, the construction's already started, we'll be discharging about 22 megalitres, megalitres of water per day, that's around between four and five million, which incidentally is about what you get from a city of 60 to 70,000 people. Uh, they'll be taking that water from the river and discharging it back into the river. With pollutants? With the pollutants. It won't be a bad polluting plant in that it's a mechanical and thermal uh, process for the paper making, not a highly chemical one, but still it, there will be materials in it that uh, we believe should be taken out of it. And, and Murray Valley League's principal aim now is the purity of the Murray waters. They were behind the irrigation water and Sir William Hudson said there wouldn't have been any Snowy Mountain scheme except for the Murray Valley League. But their principal aim now is purity of the waters and uh, the Murray Valley League, which I've got, uh, uh, I am uh, on the executive, I'm quite proud of it, uh, is making this their project see if we can persuade the powers that be and the mills to put in a city forest, which is the key line version of land treatment for sewerage effluent. Just very, very briefly here, what we're doing is uh, going to be using the effluent and we're going to be distributing it over the land along the principles of key line, is that right? Uh, the aim is to put a city forest according to the Keyline Book of uh, 1971, which was called a city forest, mm -hmm. and return most of the water back, because it doesn't take a lot of water to maintain the forest, although they are typical of high rainfall areas. So uh, it will go through the forest and the forest soil and come out like mountain spring water. We're very pleased again to have with us Mr. P.A. Yeomans, who has uh, consented to give us an interview more along uh, the lines of why his revolutionary um, water attention come uh, ecologically sound agricultural system has not been recognised more here in Australia. And as far as that goes, I think it's been recognised more by people overseas, by prominent people overseas, than here in Australia. And I'd just like you to read to, read to you a quotation by Dr. E.F. Schumacher, E. Fritz Schumacher, who I'm sure you will know was the author of a magnificent book called Small is Beautiful, and uh, more recently another book called A Guide for the Perplexed. Um, Dr. E.F. Schumacher has uh, said in his introduction to a book called Forest Farming, quote, but I was fascinated more by anything else with the work of Mr. P.A. Yeomans of Sydney, Australia, whose keyline system seemed to me to possess the perfect beauty of truth." Unquote. That's a quotation from one of the most recognised um, sane men on this planet, I'm sure, <laughs> Dr. E.F. Schumacher. And for, Mr. for Dr. Schumacher to praise Mr. P.A. Yeomans of here in Sydney, Australia so much, I think says something for our tragic neglect of his work in agriculture. Uh, Mr. Yeomans, there have been many politicians, agricultural scientists, CSIRO people, who've 
walked over your properties that you've developed along your principles, have marvelled at them, have gone away enthused, and yet your your revolutionary system of, of key line farming has never achieved the recognition it so richly deserves here in Australia. Why do you think that is? I don't really know, but I suspect that because most research money is supplied by, well, you could say the opposition of key line, uh, and people will do a lot of things, sometimes nasty things, in order to get research money, that might be a controlling factor. Mm -hmm. Now, let's, let's not beat about the bush. What exactly do you mean by this? Do you mean the large companies? Do you mean the people who, uh, shall we say, control the agricultural business at the moment? Yes, I mean the uh, chemical companies, the, 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 the people that produce the artificial fertilisers and the very damaging agricultural chemicals, their influence is great and I would say that is the uh, probably the reason. I remember uh, trying to contact Mr Borthwick who was actually Minister for Conservation here in Melbourne. Um, he actually saw over a few of your property or a few key line properties in the Kiwa Valley and he was very very enthusiastic and uh, he was reported in 1971 I think as saying that you know he really thought that many people should come and look at this fine achievement but um, it seems that you're more recognized overseas tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you've been um, consulted on uh, Phil you had a question on the Vancouver conference uh, yes, PA, I'm wondering if you've got any comments about why it was that in Australia, in our newspapers and our media, we never heard about your participation in Habitat 76 in Vancouver. I discovered it through a paper in the library about two years afterwards, um, what you said there and what the whole conference was about. And I'm wondering if there's not some truth in the maxim, you know, the prophet is never received or welcomed in his own home, if that syndrome has operated particularly in our society, our culture. I mean, it does seem to me fairly true that we do have a, an ocker knocker society of anything that's different. Um, I'm wondering if you've got any comments on, on this. Uh, at the Vancouver Habitat Conference, I did submit a paper with the sponsorship of the Murray League and uh, the Victorian Society for, uh, uh, for the name, some development society anyhow. And uh, it was a very pleasurable sort of a thing to go to in that uh, quite a few people came to the conference especially to meet me, so that was pretty good. The what I said at the conference is recorded in a book and uh, uh, some thousands of those have gone out to interested people in Australia, but why it wasn't mentioned in the media, I don't know. You've actually done a, a fairly big, uh, or been consultant, to a very big um, area in Texas. Perhaps you could tell us a bit about that. Well, it arose... Uh, a lady rang from Texas on three o'clock one afternoon and said she just read my book, The Challenge of Landscape, and she wanted to come see our ranch. <laughs> so 
I said, when are you coming? And she said, well, we can come Saturday. <laughs> so uh, I said, right, we'll meet you at the uh, airport and take you up. So uh, the visit went off very well. We were going, uh, going to the farm that weekend. So uh, a few months later, I had a letter from them asking would I come over and have a look at their property and tell them what to do about it. It was a 12,000 acre property in the panhandle of Texas and uh, they mentioned uh, an amount and uh, a couple of first class fares back and forth so it was too good an offer to refuse. So we went. Mm. How long ago was this? This was in 1960. 1964. Uh, have you sort of kept in touch with that particular project? Do you know what's happened since then? I've had pictures of the project as it developed. I think there were one or two of them in the Water for Every Farm that was published in 65 and then again in 68 and again December mm. last year. But other than that I haven't seen much about it. The lady that rang, uh, her husband has since died and she's married somebody else. But at the end of the job, the father said, uh, the father of the family asked me what I sh thought they should do. And I said, oh, well, Tom, who was one of the boys, should come out to Australia and have a look-see. And I said, oh, I couldn't do that. But by next morning, uh, the two boys and one of their wives had decided that they'd come anyhow so they came out to Sydney and they had a couple of days at the farm in a very very heavy flood period. They actually sat the wife of one of the boys in the drain so they could take pictures of it. But the uh, <laughs> the whole thing was uh, went off very well with the rain. We had to rescue them before the floods closed the bridges but Keyline works perfectly in heavy rain and they were able to see the whole thing in a day which it had taken them a fortnight to see only for the rain. This actually sounds pretty fascinating. Uh, in, in, in a period of flood like this, a gentle landscape uh, moulded along the Keyline plan, it doesn't have massive quantities of water rushing down very narrow gullies and eroding the, the, the water away, does it? Now the water is under complete control and it's doing exactly what you designed it to do. And for the most part it's clean enough to drink. Mm. It's not even cloudy. Mm. But to get back to your original question regarding recognition, we did have visits from CSIRO Early in the piece, one of the things I had to do was to talk to 14 CSIRO scientists. Uh, and my background is mining more than farming, of course. But out of that, Sir Ian Clooney's Ross took a great interest in it. Uh, later on, after a couple of visits to the farm, uh, we were able to photograph him with a handful of earthworms that uh, was published in one of the books, I've forgotten which. He uh, asked me would I 
do a key line project for them on 600 acres of land that they were just taking over, somewhere out where they are situated now. And uh, I said, yes, providing that uh, you do nothing about it other than key line. You don't put any other methods in. It's just a key line show, you see. And that was agreeable. So uh, I went up and had one trip, but they wanted to know where to put a dam. So uh, I said, well, stop. Soon it's on the hill where we can see the property, you see, and I picked the dam site down. He said, well, that's the, exactly the same site that Waterworks picked out, but it took them three months to find it. <laughs> uh, however, he, he left on a world trip. He arrived back in Australia and rang me up, and I said, well, what's new in the agriculture? And he said, there's nothing as interesting in the world of agriculture as Keyline in Australia. And he died of a heart attack straight away afterwards, you know, within a couple of weeks of returning, I think it was. The next head of CSIRO was a physicist, I think, and, and there the matter dropped. So that was the saddest day for Keyline, the death of Sweeney and Clooney's Ross. How long ago was this? Oh, uh, well, you'll be able to find his... <laughs> when he died, it was just before then. I don't remember at that time. Well... It was in the 60s, yeah. Perhaps, well, we can now look now because, let's face it, we're in the middle of an energy crisis. We have finally discovered that the fossil fuel is not going to last forever. And I think one of the major attractions of Keyline, especially to, well, younger people perhaps, is that it doesn't use massive quantities of energy uh, in terms of the massive quantities of energy needed to make fertilisers, huge quantities of fuel for spray irrigation systems or anything like this. Do you think at long last the time has really come for recognition? Yes, I think it might be around, around about now, but a gentleman who was very astute read Keyline and had a look at Keyline uh, just before the first book was published in 1954 and he said, oh, yes, Keyline is good, there's no doubt about it, that it'll take 25 years before they'll even look at it, you know. And, well, the 25 years are up, perhaps he's right. Mm. <laughs> was that Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks there? Mm? Was that uh, Sir Cedric Stanton Hicks? No, it wasn't Hicks, it was... Uh, I don't know who it was now. But Stanton Hicks was so interested in the, uh, the soil-making part of it that he when he heard about it from John Douglas, who was the uh, rural broadcaster for the ABC in those days, um, he came up to the farm. We only had 20 minutes. We raced him up and back. He had to catch a plane on and he wanted to study it and really study So he came back later and spent 10 days on the thing. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, P.A., one thing I think we all appreciate is the effort uh, and work you've put into trying to gain recognition through conventional uh, government channels and through conventional scientific channels. Uh, the sum total of that work seems to be uh, totally exasperated. I was wondering whether you felt that in the future with people gaining uh, consciousness about the uh, impending energy crisis, uh, the shortage of materials, the need for changing lifestyles, whether you saw uh, 
a hope of recognition more at a grassroots level amongst individuals. I've really got no complaint about the lack of recognition because I, to me it was a very personal problem that I just got wrapped up in couldn't leave alone. Because it was spectacular, farmers used to worry the life out of me to go and look at their properties. And I wrote the first book so they wouldn't worry me, so they could read the darn thing and do it themselves. But no matter how I wrote or what I wrote, there was always this, where do we put the first peg? Hold my hand while I put the first peg in. So I'm not complaining about the lack of recognition. I think I've been recognised very, very well. Now, if you want it for the whole of the country and for the whole of Australia, well, I think that's good. And I think the times now are such that it could go. But I, I'm not an altruistic sort of a person. I'm probably pretty selfish. It was just a self-interest thing. Instead of having an ocean-going yacht and fishing or playing golf or going to the racehorses, I like to walk around the property and try and solve these blasted problems. Because I thought planning a farm must be easy. I'd plan mining jobs and construction jobs. That was the way to plan a farm, so I thought. <laughs> but after years of, of uh, work and time on it, I had to look round and see what was right. The only damn thing that was right was the, the fence that had been destroyed by a fire. We put it back in the right place. Everything else was wrong. But when the ideas came, the first idea which was the recognition of the critical factor of the shapes of the land, their contour geometries, the position of the key point as I called it in the little primary valleys. When it came, I had two sons at universities and of course with their mates they used to like to spend a bit of time at the farm and they tore the key line theories to pieces and reconstructed them and then accepted them and then planned the whole world key line and solved every problem that you could possibly have in the landscape. So these ideas all came in a matter of about three weekends with all the mistakes we've made and of course that is one of the critical foundations of anything, the mistakes you've made. We learned not we learn what not to do at a price too until there was nothing left to do it but the right way. PA, I'm fascinated with what first turned you on to the key point, the key line. What situation were you in when you realised or saw? Where, how, what precipitated the idea? I think the genesis of ideas is a fascinating thing and it seems to me pertinent to what we're about here, the way you think and the way you were working as a mining engineer. Well, as I mentioned, I'd planned the works on mining job and then worked the plan and that had to be the way to plan a farm. But it wasn't, I couldn't find a starting place. I examined farms all over the place and I could see that they were all planned wrongly. I looked at what we'd done and the only thing right was the fence, the outside boundary fence and most farmers get that right. <laughs> but, uh, 
that I'd got a contour map. The uh, students of uh, Professor MacDonald Holmes used to come up to the farm as part of their business uh, about those years and uh, they produced a very, very good contour map and I was sure the answer was in that map. And if you could wear a map out by looking at it, I would have worn out 20 of them. And I didn't finally get the, uh, the inspiration. I'd learned a lot about the soil, but I, I, was, I wasn't satisfied that there was any proper way to plant a farm. And then walking around with my eldest son one Sunday morning, the contour map was etched on the land with channels and things that we were using to get the water around and I recognised this uh, formation at the head of a primary valley and then raced round on every primary valley on the farm. I named it the primary valley because there wasn't a name for it and I found that it was consistent and I went back to the map and found that it was cons consistent on the map and then I saw that every shape of land had a consistent geometry and uh, then I'd been playing with water in mining as well as on the farm and we had <laughs> dams and drains, most of them in the wrong place at that time. So uh, this key point concept, whether you've got a key line or not, this concept is the uh, basis of the planning. And it's the smallest feature of the land. Geographers don't have a name for it. They described some of my books as the nick point of a river. Well, it's got nothing to do with a river. It's only to do with the smallest shape of land, the smallest valley, which always falls from a ridge and always has a steep section and then a flatter section below. So that was the key point. And from that key point, it was the key to everything else in the planning field. It must have been tremendously exciting when you discovered this. And did you find that your enthusiasm and your realisation and exuberance uh, wasn't able to be uh, passed on to others immediately? Did it take a while for others to realise it? Or did your family and friends and other people, colleagues, did they immediately realise and see the same thing once you pointed it out to them? Uh, I'll admit it was exciting. In fact, you don't know what excitement is <laughs> compared with the excitement that that was. But it... Again, it was uh, a personal thing and rather a selfish thing, I suppose. Uh, my family were excited, particularly, well, they were all excited about it and uh, thought it had to be named. We had to have a name for it, you see, and key line and key point came out of that. Uh, Did you really realise the significance of this discovery, though, uh, almost immediately? I'd done so many things that were wrong. Yeah. I had to recognise the right thing when I saw it, and this was right. 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 And within, a, within three weekends, uh, we'd posed every possible land situation and problem to it. Right. And later years, I've posed every problem that I saw in other countries of the world, from the deserts of uh, America and Australia, or, to the beautiful countryside of England and Germany and France and there's just no other answer. Mm. So I had the facility then with a bit of background of geology and other things that related to mining work. I had the facility then developed very rapidly that I could sum up a landscape 
as I drove past it, because everything that was on my property, and it was a little bit more difficult, difficult on my property than most others I've seen, it was there, it was the truth. Yes. And I was highly flattered to read Shoemaker stuff. I was very sad that I never met him. You never met him? No. He was to come to Australia as the guest speaker for the Murray Valley League the year he died. Mm. Mm. We were very sad about that, but I never met him. Gosh. I didn't know that he'd read a book of mine. Gosh, that's remarkable. Tell me, do you know of anyone uh, overseas who has reached these same conclusions? Because really they are. They're, they're astounding in conclusions. Surely someone, somewhere else, has, has come to this sort of a conclusion? Well, a farmer said to me once, uh, you know, if I'd had the time and I'd have kept on going and I'd have had a bit more money, he said, I'd have invented key line. Yeah. And <laughs> he's quite right, because if you spent the time, you must get to that point. Right. But isn't this true of all the best ideas, that as soon as we see them, we say, but I should have thought of that, or that's oh, obvious, we all should have thought of that. Why hasn't somebody thought of that before? I used to nearly kick myself around the paddock for not seeing ideas earlier that were there staring me in the face. Uh, what struck me after I first met you and Ken and subsequently read the Keyline books that were available was the simplicity of it on one hand and on the other hand how complex it became when you built upon it and compounded it and put it from the macro to the micro scale, from you know, a quarter acre block or 10,000 acres, that on one hand it was simple, the concept was simple, and you could grasp it immediately, but the ramifications of it were far-reaching and were complex. And it occurs to me here that, as in the best forests and the best aspects of ecology, what appears to be simple and a beautiful pattern at first glance, when you look at it carefully, it's very complex in order to be stable. I believe you've summed it up pretty well there, but uh, it's, if we interpret nature, we get the right ideas pretty quickly. But I didn't have the sense to do that in the first place. But when you examine the richest soil on the face of the earth, what's left of it, uh, it developed through the clovers and the grasses growing together it was affected by the climate and uh, I had a very very good lesson on uh, the climate and soil aspects of this when I discussed uh, had a discussion with Professor Albrecht at the University of Columbia in, Pen in the University of Columbia in Missouri as soon as he started to talk on a, to a totally different tack to mine, it, but it was related to the health of man and beast over a climatic zone from the east to the west across America. He even had the bone, the thigh bones of rabbits from the dry to the wet going both ways from the centre and uh, in where the rainfall was right, that's between the 16 and 30 inch rainfall, they were very healthy, strong thigh bones. As the rainfall got lower and very much higher, 
they had almost tissue paper thick, very, very thin tissue paper stuff. Uh, once he started talking, my objective was to keep him talking, and I kept him talking for three days. And at the end of the, th at the beginning of the fourth day, he said, well, I've been having a great time talking for three days, now you talk. <laughs> so that's how he got indoctrinated with key line and he was quite fascinated with it. Uh, I suppose I talk today. <laughs> um, can, I, can I take you up on a point you've mentioned a couple of times and it's something that's interested your son Ken and I when we have had sessions where we've been working, developing, trying to fuse landscape and what you've taught Ken and Keyline, where we worked a lot, then we had dreaming sessions in between when the rain was too heavy to work and that. And something that we've both had dreams of is how to make more available a lot of the marginal land in Australia, which is be even outside the system that you first designed for, outside those foothills. You remember you described once the foothill area between the plains and the mountains um, that area, what about the actual plains which are almost desert? Should we leave them alone or should we try to afforestate and de-desert? Well, if you remember, I called a chapter in the city forest, rainforest in the desert, wasn't it called? The desert rainforest or something yeah. like that. Uh, and it's quite practical. I saw a beautiful, I put in a channel once on a property out the back of Winton and suggested that they don't do anything below the channel. This was to bring the water into a dam from a great umbrella of rocks miles away that if it were let go, the water would just disappear in the sands a little bit below the property. We brought that into a dam and I suggested they leave they don't interfere with the land immediately below this transporting channel. It has the largest trees anywhere in the district, a beautiful belt of trees there, that are more like a, a rainforest tree than that. Actually, they measured the moisture of the soil and there was nice growing moisture down at 54 inches. And this is in a, in a country that when I arrived, they'd just lost 5,000 of their last 6,000 sheep. And... Uh, what rainfall is that country? Yeah. Or 14 inches. But for 12 years, it didn't average seven. And the year following, when the, the year of first year of key line was only 342 points. And yet with this... The, the discovery there was to find this piece of rock that supplied the water, which just disappeared in the, in the sands a bit further down, and find a way of using that water. And, of course, the man was short of... Well, he's desperately short. He was about to walk off his property, and he thought, well, he could try yeomans. And Uncle said, if the answer isn't there... With his, he gave him the challenge of landscape to read, so that dates it to about 1966, it actually was. But uh, well, that rock was the key to his whole property. 
and he was able to irrigate nine times about 130 acres in the next year from 342 points. The dam had filled with 60 points of rain on this great shelf of rock miles away. We just trapped it and used it. And he's still on the property. That means he serviced his debt and has made money. And the only difficulty he had was when the when the drought broke in 1973, he couldn't buy any more cattle to fatten. So he had a lean time for a year then building up a bit of stock. But while ever Dalgettys could deliver sheep or cattle to him that could stand up when they arrived on the property, he did very well. And he had an enormous debt to pay off, mm. about three times what the property was worth, I think. I'm going to ask a question here because I'm sure some of the listeners are not as uh, facile with the system as you and if I've got it wrong you can tell me and perhaps I'll be in the mouthpiece for the listeners then. Um, you use the rock as an impervious layer to shed the water into a channel, is that right? It was there all the time. Right, but no one had thought of using the rock as a sheet to catch the water, in other words. As a as a matter of fact, the owner of the property didn't think of it that way. And I said to him, now, at the end of the first day I was there, it took quite a, lot, a while to look at the property, what's that line over there in the hills? He said, oh, that's the jump up over there in the distance. That's the jump up. I said, well, let's have a look at the jump up. And when we got up there, there's this huge rock area completely impervious to water and it was all had a gentle slope towards a break in the jump up and fed a little bit of a creek that you could walk across. Well then the problem was to find where we could take this water to a storage and he could irrigate from it. And, and the second problem was not only the drought but he didn't have any money, so it had to cost nothing, or nearly <laughs> nothing. Well, he solved the problem. What did you use to build the channel? Bulldust. <laughs> That's always there. <laughs> His house was in a, a clay... The Dalabore oh, wasn't as bad as this in 66 when we were out there. The, the house... The only green around the house were three tamarisk trees and the spout and a homemade hot water system that was made of two green drums. <laughs> Otherwise it was a clay pan that probably three square miles of it. So you couldn't have anything that looked worse. So you dug a channel in the bulldust with a bulldozer. Mm-hmm. Right. You could actually throw it up and then step on it and it'd just flow away from your feet like water. Yeah. And, and um, how long was the channel and how wide was it? Well, the water, came, the water came into the creek, into the little washed creek, and travelled through the property for some miles and a few miles lower down just disappeared. We had to find a place to uh, back it out into a channel we checked various levels and we found that we had no fall anywhere. If we, if we put a fall in it, we stayed in the creek. So I'd had to come out on a contour. 
But if you put it in one end, it'll flow out the other, despite what people say, that the contour won't run water, but it does. So the channel uh, had to fit in with a shape that would hold water cheaply. So it was only about a mile and a bit long then, although it came from several miles away, the actual channel we put in was only about a mile long. Right. Well, hang on. Sorry, I just keep talking. The, I've had lots of um, people say to me that, oh, you'll never get that channel to grass, you know, uh, when talking about channel in clay or channel in sand or channel in soil, I say it won't grass, you know. Uh, I'm interested to know whether this channel you did in this rainfall grass and how long it took. Well, I have to admit that I don't know. I haven't seen it. I planned it and started the construction. Uh, in fact, I told him I'd go back and give him a day if he'd get a few men and a bit of equipment round so we could break the back of the job. So I went back for one day and when I got there I was the tenth man to arrive and they had everything from shovels to little tractors, nothing any size, but we got the dam, I'd pegged the dam previously, we got the dam well underway and the lock pipe system in and I've only seen pictures of it. I know one of the channels was blessed by some archbishop and called the Yeoman's Channel <laughs> and, that, and that they had a, an opening day and that it became a stop on a pioneer tour and someone else had built a motel somewhere near it so they could get out of it, but I haven't seen it since. Only pictures. Marky Guard family grass-fed and we're here in San Gregorio, California and we raise grass-fed beef, grass-fed lamb, pastured pork and pasture-raised hens for eggs. We are uh, certified with the American Grass-Fed Association and we're also animal welfare approved. We sell our products mainly through a buying club we do deliveries around San Mateo County, and then uh, also once a year, we do a large beef harvest where we sell shares. So when I came here in 1987, uh, one of the first things I noticed was that the ranch had a lot of surface water. Just thought it would make a lot of sense to use gravity and uh, bring water down here. So Keyline Design is a whole systems approach to water and land management. When you're looking at a landscape at the 
undulations. You know, you pick up certain clues. You might say, okay, here's my key point. That's where my water is going to collect. And I'm gonna move it maybe slightly up over to this ridge from source all the way to your sink, which here is the Pacific Ocean. So you'll see these areas below the ponds that have increased forage production. Right here at that this transition is where that water collects. So you see the grass is greener right here in the key point. There's more vegetation and then it travels from the key point through this channel. What we have behind me here is a channel. And if we look closely at the water that's running in this channel, it's running very slow. The implementation of the key line design is the interconnecting ponds. The other implementation we've done is a key line ripping with a key line plow. The roots uh, will follow that, that line and be able to go deeper into the soil. Key line design and grazing go hand in hand. When the grass is, uh, has had adequate time to recover, we bring the cattle in to graze that grass. I think because we, we are on a rotation schedule, those uh, areas have time to rest. So some of the different equipment I've used through the years to develop water, mini excavators, uh, dozers, uh, the key line plow of course, and even down to a pick and a shovel. For watering our livestock, we have spring boxes and then mainly the ponds. There's about 15 ponds on this ranch. You kind of use the key line design instead of irrigating. You're really going to increase your, your forage production. You're going to uh, build your soil. Uh, the, the perennials are going to be happier because the, their, their root systems are going to be able to really tap into uh, the necessary nutrients that they need and uh, your, your pastures are going to stay greener and longer. So when I came to this property in 87, I noticed that this was a wet area and it seemed ideal to, to build a little pond here and it ended up just being an incredible wildlife pond. There's been a number of different people that have influenced the way we've done things here. Some of the permaculture teachers that we've had, uh, Darren Duerty being one of them from Australia. We've come a long way from uh, really having a closed loop system. Our business is a lot about relationships. That's important, it's just having that conscious knowledge of all of the embodied energy that goes into your food. 
that's a big part of, of my dream is to be able to source all of our resources right right here locally. I, I think it's possible. We live in a climate that we can grow so much diversity. I think that if we really focus on the local economy, I think we can we can realistically accomplish that that goal. enjoyed this episode and want to hear more like it you can do three simple things right now one you can subscribe to permaculture freedom podcast if you haven't yet number two you can leave a short review for us on itunes and third share this episode with a person in your life you think would enjoy it too thank you i really appreciate your support until next time take care my friend